Good evening, everyone. If you're following along, we are indeed reading Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amy. And I think this is working. Yes, we are. We're on. Fantastic. I'm always getting used to technology again and in a room of people, which is very exciting to preach uh, face-to-face. And uh, preaching to chairs, as exciting as chairs are, they just don't give you the same uh, feedback uh, as preaching to real people. Uh, I am John Forsyth, the vicar at St Jude's, and when people discover that I'm a vicar, uh, uh, a couple of things happen. Often people are a bit shocked because I don't look anything like the Vicar of Dibley. Uh, I think we're all thankful for that in different ways. Uh, Well, I'm not an 89-year-old man with grey hair and and who knows what else, so I kind of break a bit of a stereotype, even though I'm getting along. Uh, And secondly, people are often, I find, surprisingly open to talking about God. Uh, And often they're very happy to share their concept of God, what they think God is like or what they would like God to be like. And the general, there's a kind of a general type uh, of what people consider God to be a kind of a, a benign spirituality. God who is safe and nice and doesn't make too many demands, 
but it is there to help out if things get a bit tough, if I need a parking spot or uh, if I've got some bad health or if I need financial help. Uh, kind of like a rich uncle who takes uh, an interest in your life but is not overly concerned with what you do day to day. That's the concept of God, at least in our Western world often, or a variation thereof. But what we see this evening in Isaiah 6 is that to have a genuine encounter with God as opposed to the concept of God is something else entirely. Coming to God face to face, to have an encounter with God is not, in in the language of today, a safe space. It's not a safe space. In fact, what we'll see is one of the most, in fact, it's the most life-changing and indeed life-shaking events you will have. And this is important if you are here to kind of investigate God and Christianity. My hope is you'll see something of the bigness and hugeness of God. And if you're someone who already uh, knows God and knows the Lord Jesus, my hope is that your vision, your picture of God is increased so that you wish to serve him more. So let's look at this text together. We're going to start in verse 1. I know it's an unusual place to start at the beginning. And we read that the year is the year where King Uzziah dies. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, by the way, King Uzziah had been king for a long time, about 52 years, been around for a while. And he's one of the guys who started off as a good king in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Even though God's people had been declining... Isaiah starts off as a good king. And you can read his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. He seeks after God and God leads him to prosper, at least initially. But as Isaiah became strong, he becomes proud. And so God humbles him with leprosy. And you'll love this bit. He spent the rest of his reign in strict quarantine. (laughs) Who said the Bible is not anything but relevant? There we go. And so this long, tragic decline of the nation of Israel is reflected in its king. Something good seemed promised, but slowly yet surely human hope dies with the king. And that's the background to when Isaiah meets God face to face in this vision at the temple. And what we see through this, this extraordinary story in Isaiah is that to have an encounter with God, we see four things happen to Isaiah. Firstly, he is shaken by God's glory. Secondly, he humbly recognises his own sinfulness. Thirdly, he radically and undeservedly receives grace. And fourthly, he is transformed as a man ready to serve. And what's really interesting is, Those four steps are a little gospel outline. In fact, those four steps, in fact, are a little bit about what we do in church. We gather to sing of God's glory. We confess our sin. We hear God's word. We receive grace and our sins are forgiven. And we are sent out to serve. So a little Anglican service happening in here in Isaiah 6. Well, let's look at the first point. Isaiah is shaken by the glory of God. And if you're following along either behind me on the screen or in your own Bibles, we're looking particularly at verses 1 to 4, and we can leave that up at the moment. Isaiah has a vision with God, a vision of God, an encounter with God in the temple, 
But notice how he describes it to us. He doesn't tell us what God looked like. Instead, what he does is he describes the totally overwhelming nature of God's character. That's what he describes, God's character. And the first thing we notice is he describes God's kingly rule. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. His rule is so big, it covers the temple. The temple is no small thing. It's, It's a big building. But yet so great is God's kingly rule. It fills it. He's high and lifted up. And in verse 5, he says, Mine eyes have seen the king, not a king, but the king, the Lord Almighty. And he uses the word Lord there, you'll notice, a few different times. You notice here in verse 6, it's Lord in lower, capital L, but then lowercase. That's the Hebrew word for God. But the Lord, when everything's in capitals, but smaller caps, that's the word Yahweh. God's name for revealing himself. Not just God, but the Lord God. The great and powerful God who's revealed himself. And secondly, we see that in his vision, God is terrifyingly powerful. He is the Lord Almighty. And literally, in the original language, what that means is the Lord of hosts, which you have an old-fashioned Bible, you would have read, the Lord of hosts. has nothing to do with hospitality, by the way. It doesn't mean God was serving scones and tea. No. To be the Lord of hosts is to be the commander of a huge and powerful army that, that is on parade and ready to go on a campaign of domination. It's a picture of immense power the Lord of hosts. And thirdly, in his vision, God is terrifyingly holy. The word holy, by the way, means incomparably brilliant and beautiful and utterly like anything else, completely unlike anything else, separate from all there is. And we see this in verse 2. We've got verse 3 there, which we'll come to in just a second. And above him were seraphim, these strange heavenly winged creatures. Each has six wings. These aren't the cute fluffy uh, angels you see on your toilet paper roll advertisement, right? These are terrifying creatures. Two wings, they cover their faces. Two wings, their feet. And with two, they are flying. And they're calling out to each other, not just holy... But holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The uh, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in in the Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, you don't use the word very or a lot, you repeat. And you see this in the Psalms quite often. The Lord is great, he is mighty. Here we say the Lord is holy, holy, but there's a third holy, holy. The most holy thing there is. Now, when I was a young kid, this is a trigger warning if you're easily grossed out. I'm not sure what the trigger warning is meant to do other than say, get ready to be grossed out. Uh, I had a grain of sand embedded in my eyeball after going to the beach. Okay, some people are freaking out. Don't worry, I, I, I keep my eyesight. 
and I had to go to the doctor to have it removed, which involved a very sharp, pointy needle digging into my eyeball. And, you know, Net, the doctor here, is not, oh, yeah, it's nothing, that's quite normal. Uh, part of that is in to do with the healing. I had to wear an eye patch over my eye for a couple of days, and this was, of course, in the bright Australian summer. When I took the eye patch off, the light was so bright, I actually had to keep covering my eye because it actually hurt. It stung. It, it, I couldn't even comprehend a lit room. And that's what's going on with these seraphim. Notice God's holiness is so overwhelming, they have to cover their feet in the face. It's, it's too much. And they are heavenly creatures. It is too much for them. God's holiness is terrifying. And fourthly, God's glory is terrifying. Now the word glory in its kind of original meaning, it means weightiness or heaviness or permanence. Something that is intrinsically real and important and internal, unmovable. Compared to something that is glorious, everything else is light and flimsy and breakable and fleeting and temporary. When I was at university, I tried out and made the university American football team. And you can tell by looking at me that you're not surprised, right? <laughs> not surprised. And one of the drills, we had lots of large gentlemen in my team. We had a tackling practice with a, a mate of mine called Manu, who was six foot four and 140 kilograms. At the time, I weighed 70 kilograms. And so we had a tackling practice where he would run at me from a distance of 10 metres. And I had to, in some way, shape or form, tackle him. It's not hard to work out what happened. When something glorious, huge and heavy, comes at something light and flimsy, it shakes and destroys the light thing. See, that's what something heavy and glorious does. It shakes and defines everything else. Light things don't influence Heavy, glorious things. It's the other way around, as I can speak from experience. We speak of this when in the recent storms, people spoke of the storm being like a freight train and the whole house shaking. Every time a tram goes around the corner at my work, I can feel it as something heavy passes by. And look what happens in verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Can you see the picture that Isaiah is painting for us? God's glory is a full body experience. It's not an intellectual exercise. It, it, it is sight and it is sound and it is smell and it is vibrations and it is shaking. God's glory is overwhelming in every sense. And I mean that literally. Every one of your senses is overwhelmed. When God comes in glory, the earth shakes. That's the picture we have in the Old Testament. Exodus 19, God is doing business with his people. The mountain of Sinai shakes. The Psalms are full of this language. Just to give you two quick examples. Psalm 29, 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the desert. 
Or Psalm 99 verse 1, the lawn reigns, let nations tremble. He sits enthroned between cherubim, let the earth shake. See friends, we may be happy with the concept of God, the the idea of God, but the reality of God is something different entirely. See, a concept of God is something that that we shape, that we are more glorious than, that we affect, that we arrange, that it's safe, it's our agenda, it's our words. But to have an encounter with God in his glory, to be shaped by his glory, means God arranges us. God shakes us. God is heavier than us. It's God's agenda. It is God's words that have authority. And so to have an encounter with God means to be shaken by his glory, which means to fall on your face and do his will. Well, how do you know when you've had an encounter with a terrifying God? Well, secondly, what does Isaiah do next in verse 5? He humbly recognises his sinfulness. He is broken. He confesses. Look at verse 5. Woe to me, I am ruined. Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a dead man. That's what you do when you come face to face with the holiness and glory of God. Have a genuine encounter, not just a thought. And you think about it, he's a prophet. When a prophet says, woe, what's he doing? It's a curse. Woe to you nations. You're about to face God's judgment. That's what the word woe means. In fact, you go back one chapter, in chapter 5, Isaiah has been woeing all over the place. Uh, Six times in the second half of chapter 5. He says, woe to the greedy. Woe to the drunk and lazy. Woe to the mockers. Woe to the perverted. Woe to the self-conceited. Woe to the lawless. Woe. But now, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe is me. And notice he refers to his, his lips being unclean, which seems like an unusual phrase. There's a very specific reason for that. Uh, the lips, the words of one's mouth, reflect the nature of a human being's heart in Scripture. In fact, it's the language that Jesus himself uses, for example, in Matthew 15, where he says, but the things that proceed out of your mouth come from the heart. And those defile a person. It's not surprising when we think about the words we use. They reveal our true intent. Social media is the point. (laughs) We use our fingers to say what's on our lips. It reveals the nature of our hearts. And friends, most of the time it's not pretty. And so in the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah recognises the sinfulness of, of his own heart and he confesses it. 
And his sin, by the way, has made him unworthy to be a prophet. And what's a prophet's job is to say words from his lips. He can't even do that anymore. His lips are unclean. And his lips are so unclean, he can't even join in with the seraphim and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. That's how unclean his lips are. And not just him, he recognises God's own people are just as unclean. See, friends, when you have a true encounter with God, you are shaken to your core and you confess your sins. Uh, In Luke 5, we have a picture of this very dynamic where Peter, who is, let's just say, an enthusiastic follower of Jesus, he, he gets a glimpse of Jesus' power and glory in Luke 5, and this is what happens. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. It's the same for Isaiah. It's the same for Peter, and it's the same for us. When we have an encounter with the reality of God, with his glory and holiness, there is no place that we can stand. There is no arrogance. There is no taking selfies of me and God's glory. Check it out. We're hanging out with God. Isn't this awesome? We fall down in repentance and confess, woe is me. I am ruined. See, friends, there's no doubt in Isaiah's mind that he is about to face death. And what happens next would seem to confirm his fears, but instead something radical happens. He radically receives grace. This is our third point in verses 6 and 7. So notice what happens in verse 6. If, if this was you, imagine what's going to happen next. You're there in the presence of a holy God and one of those terrifying six-wing angels, the seraphim, flies at you with a live coal in his hand that he's taken from the altar of God with a pair of tongs. There's even OH&S in, in God's kingdom, right? What is Isaiah expecting? Death, right? Death. It, it, the fire of God is, is an Old Testament symbol of judgment. It's God's righteous anger and wrath. It consumes evil. It consumes those who are unclean. It consumes things that are unclean. And it's so dangerous, the seraphim has to use tongs. Even he can't hold it. But then something radical happens in verse 7. Isaiah doesn't die, which is radical, which is unexpected. there's, There's almost a moment of humor there, I think. Uh, with it, he touched my lips and said, see, this has touched your lips. As if uh, Isaiah somehow didn't notice. He was so terrified in the moment. <laughs> oh, what's happened? The seraphim touches him with the lips and then says this, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Words that, that Isaiah was not expecting to hear. His lips are cleaned for God's work. Not consumed, but cleansed. In other words, Isaiah receives grace. 
he receives grace. His sins are atoned for. By the way, friends, it's the same with us. We come to God, shaken by his glory, humbled in our sin, confess, and we receive grace. Undeserved mercy. And fourthly, as a result, we read in verses 8 to 13, Isaiah is ready to serve. He is a transformed man. In verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And what I love about Isaiah is he doesn't wait for the job description. He says, Yeah, I'll go. Send me. He's got no idea what he's meant to be doing. And if you've ever worked with little children, you'll know this reality. I used to teach scripture to kids in year two and year three, and they were just so on fire and excited and keen to please the teacher, I would say, I've got a question. And the entire hands of the entire class would go, I haven't even asked the question yet. I have a job. Everyone's heads sit up as straight as they can. They are so keen to serve and please their teacher. You see, Isaiah has, has seen the glory of God and now is shaped and transformed by the glory of God. God is so big and powerful and mighty. He's going, how can I do anything but please and serve, serve this great and wonderful God? Now, I want you to uh, use your imagination in, as I tell this next story. And if you haven't got an imagination, that's okay. You can, you can just pretend as we do it. Now, the, dif- the distance between the earth and the sun is around about 152 million kilometres. And someone's going to write to me and say, that's not exactly right. Well, let's just, let's just call it that. Now, I want you to imagine that you can reduce the solar system so that the gap between the sun and the earth is as thin as a piece of paper which is 0.1 millimetres on 80 GSM. I went and Googled that just to show you how committed I am to this analogy. Okay, you're imagining, you're pretending, right? The nearest, if that's the case, the nearest star, other than our sun, is 21 metres away. That's a fair distance. The edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, is 500 kilometres away. You would need a border pass to go to the edge of our galaxy. And there are billions and billions of galaxies in our universe. And the scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus holds the universe together by the power of his word in the palm of his hand. Is this the kind of person you invite into your life to be your assistant? to be available for you, to fit into your timetable and your priorities. Here I am, send me, says Isaiah. See, friends, if you want to be radically available to serve God, then you need to start with God's glory. to understand that your life revolves around him and his grace and his mercy and his glory, not the other way around. 
You need to be shaken by his glory. You need to be humbled by your sin, forgiven by his grace, and transformed to serve. Here I am, send me. See, friends, I think if you're struggling to serve, then you've lost a vision for the glory of God. Because there are lots of good excuses. Isaiah doesn't say, look, Lord, that's, it's an, a tempting offer. It's temp- look, it sounds exciting, but I'm a little busy at the moment. Perhaps in a couple of weeks' time, or a couple of... Here, I, here am I, Lord, send me. And Isaiah is sent, by the way, on a seemingly impossible mission. Did you, did you hear what his mission was? You're like, what the, what's going on here? Verse 9, he says, look, go and tell the people. Good, this is, what, this is what prophets do, right? Be hearing, that's good, but never understanding. That's a bit strange. Be ever seeing, great, but never perceiving. Uh, perceiving. Hmm, unusual. Make the hearts of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Does this sound like an entirely back-to-front message? What is going on? What is with this seemingly impossible message that Isaiah now has to deliver as part of his mission? Well, they're actually really important verses. And they're very challenging verses. They're quoted numerous times in the New Testament, often on the lips of Jesus. See, here's the problem that Isaiah faces. Number one, God's people can only be brought to repentance by hearing a message of impending judgment and the call to repent. But as they are told this truth again and again and again and again, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh times, the second problem is it doesn't soften their hearts, it actually makes their hearts harder. And so what God is doing is teaching Isaiah and teaching us something really important here. The problem, the biggest problem is not with human ears, but with human hearts. Our hearts are so stubbornly sinful that even when we're rebuked and told, stop that, follow God, our hearts won't change without supernatural intervention. In fact, they get harder and then harder and then harder. The Puritans had a saying that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. In other words, if you want to tra- trade, if you want to soften a heart made of clay, you don't just keep baking it with sun. You need to something radically transform it and radically change it into something else. And that's going to be the problem for Israel. And that's the problem for us. We need new hearts. And that is only and only an act of God, an act of His grace. Otherwise, we'll become more hardened, more stubborn, more religious, more self righteous. And so what we are being taught here is that God and God alone will somehow need to give us new hearts so that when we face the terrifying reality of God's glory and the terrifying reality of our sin, we can receive the astonishing grace that God gives us and have our guilt taken away and our sins atoned for. 
what's the solution going to be? Well, hold that thought. In verse 11, Isaiah asks, look, how long do I have to preach this message before God's going to actually act? It's a pretty tough, it's a tough gig. And God's answer is seemingly a tough answer. It says, look, this blindness and hardness of heart will continue until the land is destroyed. And you know, the language of being ruined and ravaged. And all the people are taken away into exile until judgment is seemingly complete. But yet when all seems lost, there's this little, little glimpse of hope right at the very end, at the, the second half of verse 13. This little picture, a little word picture that Isaiah has given of a forest where every tree is chopped down. But it says there in verse 13, but the terabith, which is a type of tree, that's all I can tell you, and oak, leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. In other words, from this stump, a little seed will grow and there'll be a little green plant coming out of a seemingly dead forest. It's a picture of hope. And the question we're left with here at the end of Isaiah 6 is, well, what is this seed? What is this hope that Isaiah is promised by God will, will somehow redeem his people? And a few chapters on, we get a huge clue in Isaiah chapter 11. And I'm not going too far ahead because we're doing chunks of Isaiah, so I'm not stealing anyone's thunder. This is, this is okay. This is in my realm of, of text I'm allowed to look at. Uh, 11 verse 1, A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. In the light of 11.1, God is pointing and saying this promised seed will be someone from the kingship of David, the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's dad, who will bring deliverance for his people. There's a promise there that some future king will restore God's people and give them soft hearts. And we know, of course, that this promise is fulfilled many years later. When once again, though, a temple is shaken. And once again, another man cries out in woe. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet this man, this king, the Lord Jesus, this promised Messiah bears the full wrath and anger of God, even though his own lips were not, were not unclean, even though he was without sin. Yet in doing so, it means that our guilt is taken away and our sins are atoned for. And this is the radical difference because it means our story is very different in one way than Isaiah's story. Isaiah enters the throne room of God and says, Woe, I am dead. But because of the Lord Jesus, we can approach the glorious throne room of God, not in fear, not with words of woe, but astonishingly with confidence. Don't take my word for it. Take Scripture's word for it. Hebrews 4.16 let us then approach God's throne of grace with 
confidence. With confidence. Can you imagine Isaiah reading that before he had this vision? He'd think you're mad. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, friends, this is the, the astonishing outcome of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. God's glory shakes us, yes. God's glory means that we are aware of our unworthiness and our sinfulness, that we receive grace and mercy, and that we are sent to serve. But it means now that we can approach God with confidence. In the great Wesley hymn, Bold I approach the eternal throne. Not hesitantly, sneaking into the back door. I don't know what's happening there, if that's me or someone else. It's a full body experience of glory right there. But friends, have confidence to enter the presence of the most holy God. I'm going to pray in a moment that we would do just that before we sing of our great God in his holiness. Our great and merciful God, you are holy, holy, holy. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. You shake the earth and its foundations. Father, may your glory shake us and shape us and be uh, for us to be a people who seek to serve you, who say, Lord, send me that we may approach your throne with confidence as the Lord Almighty, but also as our loving Heavenly Father. Amen. This uh, next song is very much uh, a prayer and gives us each a chance to respond to what we've heard, to respond to God's holiness appropriately, but with confidence now before the throne. Occupy my lowly 